And what the outline deals with, primarily, it's devoted exclusively, basically, the Millennial Kingdom, and it's a summary of the Millennial Kingdom. And part of the reason for devoting that, even though Jesus in the Olivet Discourse does not give us hardly or very much detail concerning the Millennial Kingdom. He just mentions it. I'll refer to the passage in a moment, or a couple of passages. The reason for that is because the issue of the kingdom was not a problem in the first century. When he spoke of the kingdom, the disciples had a concept in their thinking concerning what was meant by the usage of the word kingdom, and they understood that. And that's true in terms of not only the disciples, but uh, in general, all Jewish people of the first century. The problem of the kingdom arose after some time when Jesus, in the thinking of some church people that maybe we misunderstood since it's been so long, and Jesus said, indicated that uh, he would come shortly, well, maybe we misunderstood what he meant when he talked about the kingdom. So, in church history, there arose all these different viewpoints that we have to understand today. So, the church, I think, overall, is in some confusion concerning what the kingdom was in the thinking of the first century. So, what I'm going to attempt to do is give you a little bit of a survey or a summary of what the word meant if you mentioned it in the first century. If you mention it today, it has all kinds of other associated meanings that I think most of which are unbiblical. Does that make sense? So we'll get into that. So Jesus in the Olivet Discourse is in fact touching on the Millennial Kingdom and he's only giving us a few perspectives on it. In fact, uh, as we've said, we looked at the setting of it in the Olivet Discourse from the Mount of Olives, we've seen these photographs before. This is what disciples were looking out at Temple Mount. Now, this is obviously modern day, but in the first century, it was even far more spectacular than what uh, you would view if you went to Jerusalem today. Structures far more magnificent than even the Dome of the Rock there. In fact, puny little mosque in comparison to the Herodian Temple of the first century. So, Mount of Olives in the background there, with Temple Mount in the foreground, we've looked at all that. When you speak of eschatology, I've said this several times, I'll mention it again, think in terms of Jewish eschatology, because eschatology is Jewish. The church fits in to Jewish eschatology. And when you're dealing with the church in terms of the future, or Bible prophecy, there's relatively little relating to the church. And everything relating to the church fits in to the time frame, fits into the sequence, fits into the Jewish idea of what God is going to do in the future. That includes the coming of Messiah, that includes this period of time that is tribulation, that is Jewish, has nothing to do with the church. That's why we believe that the rapture is pre-tribulational, because the tribulation has a particular purpose. We've looked at that in our Olivet Discourse. And the pivotal point is the second coming, where everything is going to change. 
Now, we look at it from the perspective of Christ coming the first time in the first century, but Christ did not fulfill all of the prophetic scriptures relating to Messiah. There's still many of them that are unfulfilled. So, from the perspective of the New Testament, we know that Christ or the Messiah will come a second time. So, there's going to be a return of Jesus Christ, and it's particularly for Israel, for the Jewish nation. Now, we have a part in it as well. In fact, we will return with him, is what Revelation tells us. And it's also hinted at in the Olivet Discourse as well. So we have the description of the second coming, verses 29 through 31. And the rest of the, in fact, I've changed the outline a little bit, just a little tweak here to make it a little bit more accurate. The rest of the Olivet Discourse is basically Jesus applying... Jewish eschatology to the disciples that he's speaking to, and since it's scripture, it has application to us even today in the 21st century. So the applications for the Olivet Discourse begin in verse 32, and we've looked at all of those passages in chapter 24, but it actually extends to the end of chapter 25. They're all, it's all applicational. So you might say that the first half of the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, and the introduction to it in 23, is basically the doctrinal portion of the Olivet Discourse. Does that make sense? Very typical of what we have in the New Testament. Like the book of Romans, you have a doctrinal section, then you have an applicational. book of Ephesians, half of it is doctrinal, half of it, half of it is applicational. So also in the Olivet Discourse, Beginning in verse 32, we have the applicational portion. In other words, how should we respond in light of the truths that Jesus laid out in relationship to the future coming and the events associated with it? So we're going to pick up in chapter 25, actually, because we completed 24 last time we were here, or last time I was here at least. And you can break that into two parts, the application portion. And we looked at that first portion, applications relating to the second coming. That's 32 through 51. And then we will begin today, chapter 25, which are applications relating to the kingdom, which both are related and both are initiated by the second coming, or the second coming actually initiates the kingdom. So he's just transitioning slightly to the concept of the kingdom, and he only mentions it. Because in the thinking of the disciples, they would immediately know what he was talking about. And that's what we're going to spend some time, because there's a lot of confusion in the church today concerning what the kingdom is all about. And I'm not going to give you all the views, but there's a lot of confusion even here at Grace Church. There are amillennialists that go to this church, which you might find unbelievable, but it is true. I could name some names, but I will prefer not to. Okay? So chapter 25, verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like something. It will be comparable to, and then we have a parable. Now, we saw in chapter 24 a series of parables and illustrations there to bring forward the point that Jesus is making concerning how to apply the doctrinal portion of the Olivet Discourse, the things that he's mentioning. In other words, he's calling upon us to be alert, one thing, be prepared, another, 
be aware. In other words, there's some dangers, a lot of applications. He's going to continue in chapter 25 giving more applications and more parables. There's at least two more. You might include the third part there as a parable as well, even though it's not introduced as a parable. But he uses an illustration at least. So he's giving parables and illustrations to further apply the Olivet Discourse. So the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. We're not going to get into that today. I'm just going to give you the background concerning the kingdom. In order that you and most of you already have that perspective, but just to reinforce it, and for those that are listening on the website, so that they have the perspective of what the disciples understood when Jesus uses the word kingdom. And by the way, the book of Revelation doesn't explain in chapter 20 when it deals with the millennial kingdom as well. It doesn't give us a lot of details. So you have to go primarily to the Old Testament to come up with a lot of the details concerning the kingdom that is yet future. So we're going to go into a little bit of an explanation because there's so much confusion and misinformation and fuzziness even here at Grace Church concerning what the Bible means when it refers to the kingdom. Now the word is used in different senses, yes. But when Jesus, when the book of Revelation, when the Old Testament, the understanding of the disciples, when they thought of a future kingdom associated with the arrival of Messiah, they had a picture in their thinking. And this is the picture that I want to give you. All right? Does that make sense? Everybody awake? Okay, good. Jim? I know there's basis for If they were familiar with all of the scriptures, yes. And some of them did, but a lot of them were a little fuzzy as well. But they had some things in mind that we'll go over. And it did include Gentiles. We'll look at some of those passages. Connie? We talked a lot about the Davidic covenant. Very important. Right. And yet, keep them up. How does that relate to the Right. Yeah, in the first century mindset, and we get this from a variety of passages as well, Jews, and in fact even biblical texts, Old Testament Hebrew texts, the Jews had a reverence for the name of Yahweh. And they said had such a high regard for the name Yahweh that uh, they would not pronounce it for so reverence that they did not want to defile it by pronouncing it. So in a lot of Hebrew texts, there's a space that's left blank where Yahweh would be normally inserted. And because of that, they would refer to Yahweh, or God, in this euphemistic way, either using Adonai or other words that would represent the one true God of the Bible. And I take, when it refers to the kingdom of heaven as one of those euphemisms, it's referring to the kingdom of Yahweh, or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel. Very good question, by the way. And Jesus uses the phrase in Jewish context, because the Jews would have associated the kingdom of heaven. They would have thought, oh, okay, he's talking about the kingdom of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Yahweh. He's just not pronouncing the uh, tetragrammaton, which is 
was referred to. The four-letter words for Yahweh in uh, the Hebrew text. So I don't see a distinction. And by the way, the kingdom of God occurs as well in the New Testament, or the kingdom of the Lord. I see those as somewhat interchangeable in, in the New Testament. Some try to make a distinction, but I think if you have that Jewish understanding, it it makes better sense. So no, words, no. What you're saying, I think, the word heaven should be clear. Yeah, it's kind of a euphemism for the kingdom of God or kingdom of Yahweh. Yeah. So the kingdom of heaven, what he's going to do is, and he doesn't explain because his disciples understood what he was talking about. But because of confusion, we need to explain, well, what did the disciples understand? And that's what I want to do today. And then in verse 31, in chapter 25, he, again, is not, he doesn't use the word kingdom, but he's referring to the reign of Christ in that kingdom. This is one of the things that's going to take place when the kingdom is established. So in verse 31, but when the Son of Man comes, relating to the second coming, in his glory that he's just described in chapter 24, and all the angels with him, that's verse 31, okay, chapter 24, 31, then, in other words, at that time, at the establishment of the, what we describe as millennial kingdom, and we describe it millennially because the book of Revelation tells us it's a thousand years. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's Old Testament. Messiah reigning, and from the book of Revelation, for a thousand years on planet Earth in a visible, external kingdom, much like that kingdom that was established in the Old Testament except there's going to be some differences, radical differences, in fact. But it's that kingdom that was in the mind and in the thinking of all Jewish people in the first century, particularly the disciples. And what we're going to do is describe what that kingdom is like. So we're not going to get into the Alabama Discourse so much as to give you a little bit of background as to how that word was used and understood in the first century. To clarify the confusion. No? The setting of this kingdom of God we're talking about the earth, new earth. Yes. Yes. It's not this, it's not the church. That's a very common understanding. In fact, that's the amillennial view is there's no future earthly visible kingdom. That's amillennialism. The church is the kingdom. That's amillennialism. Make sense? It's also called prayer. Preterists tend to be all millennial. Yes. Sound like uh, talking about the same kingdom by Harry. It's the same one. I mean, he's not distinguishing. He's not. He's just giving a series of little snapshots here of some aspects of the kingdom. We'll clarify. Oh, heaven on earth. No. Kingdom of heaven. No, that's a confusion as well. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank thank the church in general for that. Pardon me? See, last night, you were supposed to purge your thinking of all of this false ideas of the kingdom. There is also a misconception. People think of the kingdom, in a future sense, as equal to heaven. That's another misconception. I don't think that's the case at all. The kingdom that Jesus is describing, the kingdom that is Old Testament, 
The kingdom that the disciples understood was different from heaven or the eternal state. And I make a distinction. And I think the book of Revelation makes a distinction as well. Particularly the book of Revelation. Jesus is not explaining it because his disciples understood what he was talking about. It's you and I, or some of us, that are confused and get, have all these ideas in our thinking that are, I don't think, biblical. So another question. So the rapture would have occurred prior to his second coming here. Yes. So it talks about he's coming back with his angels. Yes. And book of Revelation, he's coming back with his saints as well. Revelation 19. To clarify the saints, and then that would, intention would be the, the rapture of uh, believers, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're going to try and clarify that if we can get to it. But if we don't finish today, we'll continue. Interesting that it's all the angels. Yes, all the angels. Interesting, very much. Yeah, very good observation. Okay, here's all of Matthew on one slide, or Matthew 24 and 25. 24, we've been looking at the tribulation period, the beginning of birth pangs, 4 to 14, remember that? And then beginning in verse 15, we have the abomination that makes desolate, a very significant event in the middle of that seven-year tribulation period. This is just a reminder here. And then Jesus describes verses 15 through 28 as great tribulation. That's that seven-year period. Daniel's 70th week, we went into a lot of detail there. And then in verses 29 through 31, we have the second coming described. And then in verse 25, verse 1, and then also in verse 31, he introduces us to this concept of kingdom. And verse 31, it speaks of Jesus reigning on his throne. So it follows this Jewish scheme, if you will. And in fact, there's an allusion in verse 46 to the eternal state after the thousand years or heaven, or eternity, I, I make a distinction between the two. I see the kingdom as part of world history, and heaven as different than the kingdom. Now, I think there's some continua continuations of some things that are begun in the kingdom that continue into the eternal state, but they're different. Major events. Let's take a look at major events. And I'm going to go over these quickly. In fact, turn primarily to the book of Revelation. Revelation probably puts it together better. It summarizes a lot of Old Testament passages. And if we had time, we could go back to the Old Testament. But the book of Revelation kind of gives us a summary. In fact, the book of Revelation, written by John, the apostle... John assumes that you are good Jewish little girls and little boys, and that you understand somewhat Jewish eschatology. And what John is doing is giving you a lot of the details that your, your bar mitzvah left out, and your training as a little Jewish girl and little Jewish boy left out. He's giving the details but he gives it in the background of thinking that you have that Jewish eschatology background. That's another reason the book of Revelation is difficult for some people, because most people don't have that background. But what he's doing, and turn to uh, chapter 19, first of all. So we have the second coming. That's Revelation 19, 1 through 16. We're not going to look at that. But we have a more detailed description of the second coming in that passage. More detailed than Matthew 24. 
Secondly, and I'm using S's here as my kind of alliteration to help you remember and kind of put it all together. Squelching of enemies, or destroying of enemies, or whatever, however word you want to use there. That's described in verses 17 through 21. And let's read that passage, and we'll just read some of these just to familiarize you with them. We've looked at some of these already. We were talking about some of the things relating to the second coming, or the tribulation, rather. Somebody want to, Connie, you got 17? We won't read it all. Just start in 17 and read into that. Okay, now this passage, come. notice verse 17, immediately after the description of the second coming. So this is what happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This angel that is described there, and then we have this kind of cryptic description that we alluded to when we were in uh, Matthew 24, where you have these birds eating the flesh, because this is the, Jesus is going to conclude the battle of Armageddon. And there's all kinds of death and destruction. Keep reading. So Read 18. It's it's gruesome, but people like it. So. <laughs> okay, that's the conclusion of Armageddon. In other words, all this death. And we have these vultures descending down, eating the flesh. Keep reading. Okay, that's important. The beast, that's Antichrist. Keep reading. That's Armageddon. That's that second beast of Revelation 13, called False Prophet. Keep reading. Okay, and it goes on and on and on. But basically, these primary enemies end up in the lake of fire. That is hell. The lake of fire equals hell. So we have second coming. These are major events. Squelching of enemies at his coming. Thirdly, we have the seizure of Satan. And you might use the word binding of Satan. That's chapter 20. Would somebody read those verses? Okay, great. 20. 20. Um, and they saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon. That old now in Revelation 12, the dragon is Which Satan is himself, devil. is the devil. And Satan bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he would be loosed and loosed. Okay, so there's the beginning of the description of this thousand year period. Satan, this is a major... Issue in terms of this thousand year period. Satan is bound. How would you like to have that experience today? No satanic temptation. He's bound for a thousand years. Now the amillennial says, well, he has this long chain and he still has access. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I just said. He, he's bound, but he has this long chain that he can, he has a lot of reach. Hmm? Well, you have to spiritualize that to be anomaly. You have to spiritualize a lot of passages to be anomalous and stretch it out like with long chains. So 
That's one of the things that is important in terms of this period of time. It is radically different. And I think uh, we won't have time, but there's some particular purposes, some particular things that God is going to accomplish during that period of time. I can't give it all to you. I can just give you today a brief summary of this period of time. So we have the seizure of Satan. And if you want to put it on a timeline, here's the thousand years that the book of Revelation begins. It begins at the second coming. We've looked at the tribulation period, seven years. And now I'm going to put these events on a timeline here. And the first thing that we have here is Satan is bound right off the bat. Yep. Is this abyss? Like, is it different than the lake of fire? Yes. It's different. The abyss is different from the lake of fire, and there's not a lot of passages that refer to it. It seems to be a place of confinement, and in the book of Revelation it's referred to where there's demons that come out of it. So it's a place of confinement for demonic spirits. By the way, I should have called your attention... Antichrist and the false prophet are already in the lake of fire. Satan is not there yet. He is just bound in this, what's called, in the Greek, abusas, or abyss is the way it's translated. So the second coming, there are several judgments. We talk about the saints being judged at the second coming, after the rapture, that's the bema. We've spoken of that. Antichrist, we looked at that passage just a moment ago, and you can include the false prophet. There's going to be a judgment on Israel. I'm going to return to Israel. There's going to be a judgment on the nations. Matthew chapter 25 deals with these two issues in parable form. It doesn't give a lot of detail because there's Old Testament passages that deal with that as well. But Jesus is applying in Matthew chapter 25. We have a, a few little things that Matthew, Jesus puts together for us there in terms of Israel and the nations. We'll look at that in Matthew 25. So we have the seizure of Satan, and then we have saints in the millennial kingdom. Saints are in the millennial kingdom. Somebody read verses 4 through 6, Revelation 20. Who wants to do that one? Jim. Then I saw thrones, and they said on them, judgment given to them. Okay, it doesn't identify them. Who are who are the them in that context? Thrones are given to them. Okay, let's take a vote. How many of you think apostles? <laughs> Jim. How many of you think of somebody else? Uh, any other suggestions? Okay, believers maybe. All right, so there's another option there, Connie. Okay, martyrs of the tribulation. Well, I think it's all of the above. In other words, all that are promised a place in the kingdom. Old Testament saints are promised a place in the kingdom. New Testament believers are promised a place in the millennial kingdom. The apostles, very specifically, in Matthew uh, 19, 28, they are going to sit on 12 thrones, ruling in the kingdom and judging in the kingdom. And I think, specifically, martyrs of the tribulation period that died, they are involved. So all of the above, I believe, are the them. Keep reading, Jim. And I saw the souls of those who had beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. Now, there's a distinction there. The them, and then now he's seeing the souls of them that have been martyred. 
So there's the martyrs of the great tribulation period. Now these are believers that have been martyred in the tribulation. Keep reading. And because of the word of God, those who had not worshipped or in the had not received the mark on the forehead, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a year. Okay, they reign with Christ for a thousand years. These are martyrs. But them includes Old Testament saints, in, so that includes all of uh, world history before Christ, the disciples, Matthew 19.28, and believers that trust in Jesus Christ and are faithful, they have a place in the reign because there's promises of believers. And then the distinction that John makes there is also those martyrs that die. So basically all saints up to this point will reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Did you finish reading verse 6? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the years were completed. This is blessed and holy as our first place. Over these, the second death has that they will be priests a thousand years. Okay, see the reigning, reigning with Christ for a thousand years. And by the, by the way, the reference to a thousand years occurs six times in the book of Revelation. And it has never been fulfilled in history. That, therefore, makes it future. And it's only the book of Revelation that gives us the time frame. The Old Testament doesn't give us the thousand years. But it describes it in a lot of detail in many passages, some of which we'll look at. Uh, that the passage that you just read differentiates between two groups of people. Yes. Some resurrected uh, at that point, some not resurrected here. Right. When he refers to the first resurrection, he's referring to a category. In other words, these are resurrection of believers. Now, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says there are different stages of that first resurrection. John calls it a first resurrection that, in, that Paul makes clear has different stages. In fact, Paul says Christ is the first fruits. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits. And then there's others. Those at the rapture, they're resurrected at the rapture. And then there's going to be a first resurrection phase of those at the end of the tribulation as well. That put it together? Look at that 1 Corinthians 15 passage where it talks about different phases or orders. Jim? Interesting that when he's died on the cross, resurrected no Yes. And those are part of that first resurrection. The second resurrection is at the end of the millennial kingdom, and it includes unbelievers. So is that when that final judgment in Revelation 20? Yes, yes. We'll get there. So, saints in the millennium, we have rulers, that's verse 4. Faithful Old Testament saints, the 12 apostles, faithful New Testament saints, and then we have tribulation saints. And there's two kinds of people in the Millennial Kingdom. There are resurrected people, based on what we just read, and other passages. And if you put it all together, if the rapture occurs before the seven-year tribulation, then the church-age believers are in resurrected bodies. And if we are promised a place in the Millennial Kingdom... We will reign in the millennial kingdom in resurrected bodies or spiritual bodies. 
So during the thousand years, there will be church-age people. Now, these are only those that are genuinely believers. Not necessarily just people that are on the rolls of whatever denomination or church. So it includes the church, age, genuine believers. It also includes the Old Testament and tribulation believers. They are resurrected, and they will reign in spiritual bodies. And we may have roles somewhat like what Jesus did when he was resurrected and walked the face of the earth. We may be able to manifest ourselves in a physical form like Jesus did and eat a meal and interact like he did with the Emmaus travelers and with, with the disciples. And up in Galilee when he appeared to the disciples, he interacted. We may be able to do something. There's no verse that says that. It just seems that if we have resurrected bodies much like Christ, we will be like him, is what verse John tells us. We may be able to manifest in similar ways and perhaps disappear like Jesus did. Make sense? There's a resurrected spiritual believers reigning in the kingdom. Now, there are also, and by the way, this is very, very important, because this group, these mortal believers that walk into the millennial kingdom, that survive the seven-year tribulation, they walk in in mortal, sinful bodies like you and I today. They survive the tribulation and they enter into the kingdom. This is important because this is what Jesus is talking about. It's that group that survived the great tribulation that he's dealing with in Matthew chapter 25. Does that make sense? And this kind of harmonizes with a lot of the passages that we have in the Old Testament that describes people in the kingdom. It describes people in a very physical environment. Farming, uh, developing crops, prosperity, all these issues. We're not going to have time to get to the conditions today. We'll pick up next time. But all those conditions that are described, like in Isaiah, the, the lion laying down with a lamb. In other words, a literal lion laying down with a literal lamb. If you had a pet lion and you had a pet lamb, you wouldn't let them do that today, right? Unless you wanted to feed your lion. But in the millennial kingdom, there's going to be some physical changes that take place. And some of the physical changes deal with resurrection bodies. But there's also people that enter in in mortal bodies. And those will include living Israelites. That's the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. We'll get into that. But it also includes people that are believers that come from the nations or Gentiles. Ethne is a Greek word there for nations or could be translated Gentiles. What happens to their sin nature? They keep it. They have their sin natures. That explains why there's a rebellion at the end. Yeah. You think right? that the resurrection bodies look like physical bodies? Jesus is, he could manifest and you could see the nail marks. So, Seems like except you, we probably won't have gray hair, you know, and that sort of thing. All of you will have all your hair. One of the living Israel, is that Jewish people? Yes. I mean, True Jews, I don't believe in Christ. No, these are the Jews that trust in Jesus Christ okay. during the tribulation that survive and are not martyrs. So they're not, I mean, 
And similarly, there'll be believers from all of the nations. Remember in Revelation chapter 7, it talks about a great multitude. Now, those are martyrs, but there'll be others that survive and will, in fact, enter into the kingdom. These are the ones that Jesus, I think, are describing in Matthew chapter 25. I'm just drawing and putting all of the Old Testament passages together so that they harmonize. Connie. Also, you could say that They will all be destroyed at the end of the seven-year period. They're the ones that are raised in that second resurrection, as well as all Old Testaments of all time. Of all time. During the Millennial Kingdom, Isaiah 20 tells us about children being raised during the kingdom and probably born. Exactly. Marlene. How do believers say nature is a reason? Well, are you a believer? Are you a believer? Do you have a sin nature? Yeah, but... Yeah, but, 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 but. Well, people are going to go in just like you are right now. In other words, if you were living during the tribulation and you became a believer during that seven-year period of time, uh, you have not been resurrected yet. You are entering into the kingdom in your mortal bodies. Okay, so after the rapture. These are new believers, new believers that arise during the seven-year period of time. So that's why that's why you have those. One at, one at a time, uh, Mary Lee. Yeah, so that's why the, you have those who rebel, because we still have the sin nature that the spiritual ones would not have a sin nature. Correct. They are they're resurrected, they're sanctified. Yeah. Sanctified completely. But the Glorified. bodies still have that, so they can be seduced after the thousand years by the lies of yeah. Satan when he's released. Right. What the book of Revelation implies, doesn't state it overtly, this is a theological conclusion, is that one of the things that God is demonstrating to all creatures, angelic as well as human, is Satan is bound. You can't blame Satan. Christ is reigning himself on a throne. Perfect righteousness is affected. There's going to be justice, there's going to be peace, there's going to be righteousness. You can't blame your neighborhood. You can't blame Satan, you can't blame your neighborhood, and there's still sin, what's left? The sin nature. It's going to show the utter sinfulness of depravity, of man's nature, of what we are like in the flesh. I think that's one of the implied purposes of the thousand-year period of time even under ideal environmental conditions, even with Christ reigning, even with Satan bound, there are still a group of unbelievers at the end. Now, those unbelievers, I believe, are born during that thousand years and involve that rebellion at the end of Revelation 20. So there will be no death, though, during this thousand years? No, there is death. Isaiah 65, 20. Yeah, and that's in a millennial context. There is death. The curse is partially lifted, but not entirely. The death aspect is still there. So we have saints in the millennium, they will reign, and then we have these resurrections that we read. Okay, this is just on the timeline, Satan bound. First resurrection, which would include all those resurrections we talked about. Israel is going to be judged. This is what Matthew 25 is describing in the parables. 
And also, the last part of Matthew 25 is talking about the nations being judged. Is this putting it together for you? Yep. At the very beginning of the thousand years. In fact, the Bible doesn't describe any, virtually any events of the millennial kingdom. It describes conditions, but not events. And that's the last part of the outline sheet there. Yes, in the future, right. The only, if you want to call it an event, would be the reigning of Christ, the reigning of David, the reigning of Old Testament saints, the reigning of believers in the New Testament, in the church age, the reigning of saints during the tribulation. If you want to consider that an event, that's the only thing that's really described as an event. So we have saints in the millennium, four through six. We won't read this because we've got to conclude. We'll pick up here next week. But we have sin after the millennium that we've already been talking about. That's that final rebellion, beginning verse 7 through 10. We'll read that next week. Merle? I just had a question. Um, okay. You'll put it together for next week. Sure. Okay, so we have at the end, we have a revolt. Gog and Magog, which is interesting. I won't get into the details there. Photographs. We'll come back and look at them. But those are the major events, and then there's a final event that we'll also talk about that I haven't shown on the slide yet. Great White Throne. That is the last event of world history. The Great White Throne. That's the final and ultimate judgment of unbelievers. Only unbelievers. Now again, this is all mixed up in a lot of theological systems. Premillennialism distinguishes these different judgments. The final one, Great White Throne, and then chapter 21 of the Book of Revelation, that is the eternal state. It's different from the Millennial Kingdom. It is outside of time, so it doesn't have any time constraints. It's eternity. Make sense? So we've seen, I've given you kind of the biblical picture of the major events. Next week we'll focus on the conditions This is what the disciples understood the kingdom to be like. These are the conditions. I've got them summarized on the outline sheet. So when it says we will all stand, we'll stand at different times. The great white throne is specifically for unbelievers. Yes. So we as believers will stand with God the Bema. The Bema, that's the It doesn't give us a time frame, but probably... If it's not immediately after the rapture, it's sometime between the rapture and the second coming. And it makes sense immediately after the rapture. We go to be with him. In fact, we go outside of time, I believe. There would be another argument that it's later because it comes through the Great Tribulation. No, because they are, they're a totally separate group. Don't mix up the believers. The passage that, in Second Corinthians just for church age. I think so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think the church is kind of parenthetical. And, and very distinct. In other words, it has a beginning, day of Pentecost, it has an end, the rapture. That's the end of the church age. The believers of the great tribulation are not part of the church. They're like Old Testament believers. These are theological things that we put together given all of the data. Who wants to close for us? Jim. Listen to these details. He's a macro.
more importantly, Father, I pray that people understand how this understanding is to contribute. Understand that I this information revealed in your script, uh, that it will contribute to our hope, knowing that you're sovereign. So as we see the events at hand, we understand what you bring. We will be hopeful, hopeful, and, and that we will be people who experience and manifest your joy. Amen. And here's the answer to uh, Jim's prayer. How we live now will determine our position in the kingdom. And there's lots of passages that indicate that. In other words, the more faithful you are now, this is how we apply it. The more faithful you are now to your walk in Christ and your service for him will determine your position in the millennial kingdom. And there's different positions in the millennial kingdom. We'll continue next week.